Yeah, sorry about the um, confusion earlier. The, I was waving this card. If you want to invite someone to Is Faith Always Blind next Sunday, there's some cards on the... Oh, hallelujah. I was, just, <laughs> one of the, I was praying a couple of things as I sat there, and one of them was, please, Lord, just stop this. <laughs> anyway, um, so Is Faith Always Blind? If you want to come along or if you want particularly to invite someone else, there's some cards uh, just on the welcome desk there. Um, to, to pick up and use. Okay, so we're going to be looking into uh, Genesis uh, chapter 4, where uh, we weren't there last week, but uh, we have been looking into some of these early chapters of the Bible um, in the weeks that, uh, for the last few weeks, and we'll be doing that for a few more weeks. And it's on page, uh, page 6, in fact, if you want to follow it in the church Bible. It may come up on the screen. Uh, Who knows, but we were not going to read it yet anyway. Now, um, if uh, this is your first time here, yeah, we'll put it up later, Bill, thanks. Uh, uh, If this is your first time here, then welcome, and uh, uh, I expect uh, you may know that in in a church like this, we spend some time every week reading the Bible and seeing what we can learn from God's Word. And at the moment, we're in Genesis, the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Its very first word is beginning, and that's where the name Genesis comes from. It's all about uh, the very beginnings. It's the big story, as we have seen, of the human race, really. It's uh, this ancient book that comes in a particular form, uh, but that connects us, even today, with what happened Uh, And it answers or begins to point towards answers to some of those really big questions of meaning and significance and, you know, what's the world all about and and why is it there and so on and so forth. It's not so much about how it all happened, um, but it is a lot about why. And it's a bit like you may have heard the story, I know I've shared it here before, but you know, you're, you can observe something like uh, uh, you're in the science lab, and in the science lab there's a Bunsen burner and a, a, fl- a glass flask with water, and the water is boiling, and you think to yourself, now why is the water boiling? And uh, you look for somebody, uh, and there's somebody in a white coat, uh, a scientist, and he says, well, the water's boiling because the heat's coming from here, and it's going through there, and it's going across the gauze, and, and the, the, you know, the glass is getting hot, and it's transferring in the water, and the molecules are doing whatever the molecules do. You can tell I'm not a scientist at this point. And, you know, it's all boiling. It's 100 degrees C. It's boiling. The water's vaporizing. That is what's happening. That is why it's boiling. If you ask somebody who's got maybe a, a, you know, one of those fawn coats that Morecambe and Wise always used to wear in, you know, on some of their uh, shows as uh, stagehands, one of those kind of fawn coats, uh, you ask them, why is the water boiling? Because I'm going to make a cup of coffee. That's why it's boiling. And, and Genesis, you know, they're, they're both answers to a question, why is the water boiling? And Genesis, in a way, it's a bit of an oversimplification. It's telling us why the water's on, why we're here. Not with all details of how God did it, although there are some fascinating connections, as we have seen. And we see from this book of Genesis how human beings are made with a purpose, a purpose to be in relationship with God, to be in relationship with one another, and to be in relationship with the rest of God's creation. And we've seen how, you know, lots of what it is to be human kind of gets played out in those three areas of, of spiritual life, of social life, and, and, and connection with the environment around. And we've seen that it all starts brilliantly well. It's a wonderful uh, beginning. Uh, but it goes wrong when the human beings make a choice. 
They walk away from God's purposes for them. God just said there was one thing they couldn't have in that garden where he put them. And the one thing that he said you can't have, that was the one thing that they wanted and took. And uh, all kinds of things happen. They, their, their connection with God is broken and lots of other things flow out from that. Their, their relationship with one another is never going to be the same again. And their relationship with creation also is significantly broken. And last time we saw how they ended up banished from God's presence. And then, then we hear how it, somehow it all goes wrong again for two of their sons. Cain and Abel. Cain, the older one, murders his brother, Abel. It's all about how he wants to worship God. God tells him, actually, go my way. You can worship me this way. This is the way I want you to worship me, like Abel does. And Cain says, no, I'm not going to. He refuses. God tells him, if you refuse that, sin will get you. Something called sin arrives on the scene. First mention of it is last time in Genesis. And, and God says to Cain, if you go that way, sin is waiting to get you. Cain goes that way despite the warning and Abel lies dead on the ground with his blood, as God says, crying out to him. And we saw last time it's a kind of rerun in a way of what happened in the Garden of Eden. But all through it all, we see how God is still looking after these people. They've rejected him, but he still makes sure they're clothed. Animals uh, die so that this naked couple with their rather pathetic kind of aprons of fig leaves can have something decent to wear. God provides that for them. God tries to stop Cain from going that way. Even the banishment we saw was for the good of the human race. And then he makes this promise right as they're banished. He says to, to, to the woman, to Eve, I will place enmity between this evil and the offspring, your offspring, this serpent and, and your offspring. He will crush your head and you, he will bruise your, uh, he will bru- uh, the serpent will bruise his heel rather. He will crush the serpent's head and the serpent will bruise or strike at his heel. And we saw that it's not just about snakes and people, is it? But it's about Satan and his influence and control in the human situation and Jesus who ultimately defeated him. And right at the beginning, we see that God has already initiated the rescue plan. And I know that we've thought about it in house groups and uh, I gather quite a few people have been talking to each other about these Genesis uh, kind of uh, conversations. And uh, one of the things I've picked up is that uh, and it, I, it struck me too, and uh, I'm sure Lewis, she preached, that how good God is in all of this. You see the goodness of God here. Even though it's all going wrong, even though almost like judgment is pronounced, within it you see this God who creates a fantastic creation, a beautiful world. A world that he wants uh, us to be part of on his behalf. He wants the human race to engage with him. He allows the human beings the dignity of making a choice uh, with all of the consequences that flow from the choice they made. And yet he still limits the damage. He doesn't abandon the human couple. Uh, Already a rescue plan is in process. Now this is the God of the Bible. This is the good God of the Bible. The, the, The loving God who doesn't kind of avoid what's wrong, who certainly will, can, you know, allow us the dignity of being judged for our wrong choices. But all the time he's trying to win us back, get us back 
make sure the damage is up. He could have obliterated the human race and started again, but he doesn't. That's the God of the Bible. And make sure that's the God you believe in. There's plenty of lies on offer. The serpent can still to say to us, yeah, God, he only wants to ruin your life. He doesn't want you to have good stuff. That's why he puts these restrictions in. He loves judging people. In fact, you know, some people even think he sends disasters into our lives just to make it rough for us. And you know, there's all those kind of lies about God that it's so easy to pick up. Make sure, please, we're going to believe in God at all. Make sure it's the God he introduces himself to be in this book of Genesis and right through the Bible, in fact. So what kind of God do you believe in? What kind of God do you believe in for yourself? What kind of God do you believe in for those around you, for those you care about? He is the same God. The God who doesn't want us to be abandoned, who wants to come after us, but who won't force us into making choices or undoing the choices that we've made, but invites us to come back into relationship with him. You believe that for yourself? Can you believe it for other people? Those you care about, can you believe it for those people you really can't stand? You know, sometimes there are people that we just don't like them and we think, yeah, I'm glad that, you know, God's going to get them. (laughs) No, that's not how God sees it at all. Make sure that we believe the God of the Bible. Now, the big story continues. And we see it all being worked out in people's lives as we read on, as the human race starts to make progress. And as it starts to make progress, as we start to make progress in Genesis' account, uh, we start to see another family. So chapter 4, verse 17. Uh, and if you thought that was a long introduction, it's okay. I'm a quarter of my, the way through my notes, so that's all right. My whole notes, not the introduction notes. Uh, Let's read chapter 4, verse 17. Cain lay with his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mahujael. I should have read this out loud before I read it now. And Mahujael was the father of Methushael and Methushael, but even better if someone else had read it. Methushael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, this is a little poem here, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. So Cain's story goes on. He gets a wife. He has kids. His tribe develops. Now, you're going to know the old question, where did he get his wife from? We don't know the answer to that. But just one thing I can tell you about Genesis is that um, 
these, these are like genealogies. And in the Bible, and like other uh, literature of this time, genealogies are like edited highlights, okay? They're not like everyone that was born. So uh, there were other people around. There may have been other siblings or there may be others in the tribe. We just don't really know. But it, it's the, 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 you're not to read these genealogies in this chapter as the next chapter as if it was him, 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 and him. Uh, it's been structured in a certain way. Yeah, I, you know, I was telling you earlier on, if you count, if, you, if you're really into it and go into the Hebrew and you count the numbers, it's all, everything is in sevens and tens and so on. And the whole thing is constructed in a very careful way. So it's, this isn't the newspaper reports. This is a kind of a way of retelling events to make points. So don't worry too much about where Cain got his wife from, is what I'm trying to say. But what comes out of Cain's tribe? First of all, cities. People clump together to live. Now, cities in this translation doesn't mean like Southampton of 260,000 people. or Any kind of group of people living together is a city as far as this word is concerned. So people are clumping together. That's the point. People get together. They begin to live in communities. Also, we see that from his tribe come the ideas of, or, or, or in the human race, herding animals is developing. Uh, and, and interesting that as people look, as uh, anthropologists look for the earliest kind of recognizable signs of what makes a human cluster a human cluster, they are things like this, you know, organized farming, uh, living together in, in communities. Uh, and then the next one, uh, music and culture comes out of his kind of tribal experience as a human race begins. And not just culture and music, but, but making stuff, engineering, see there? sharpening tools. So we've got this kind of list of the human race kind of developing and doing all the great things that the human race does. We live together. We're good with music and art. We can make things. We can sharpen metal to do tools. And, and you know, we can, you know, it's pretty good, isn't it? It's uh, being in the image of God. The human race is doing what God told it to do, us to do, which is to fill the earth and to, to subdue it. And, and all this is going on, and, and, and that's, in a sense, we're still made as in God's image, and we've still got that, that kind of job to do in the world, and we see the human race doing that. It's a great picture of how good we can be, human beings in God's image doing great stuff. It's good, isn't it? But there's another side to it. Look at verse... Uh, 19 following. This is, again, in this genealogy, one person is picked out. And Lamech is the one who's picked out. He's one of Cain's tribe. He has two wives. Now, that may be implying that you know God's intention in the Garden of Eden was for there to be one, and now he's got two. Maybe that, not really sure. Um, experts are divided on it. But here's the big point. To his two wives, he composes... A staggeringly beautiful song. Uh, we can't, we don't get the beauty of it here, but again, the, the experts who analyzed it will, you know, you can look it up in a book and you can find it's a, it's a perfect piece of Hebrew poetry. It's got every, you know, if you wanted to say the, the Hebrew poetry has got all these things in it, here's an example of a piece of beautiful poetry that's got it all beautifully put together. It's beautiful. And it probably had a lovely tune as well. In, in fact, it's the first song like that that there's been since Adam burst into song when he saw Eve, you know, back earlier on. But what's it about, this song? <laughs> 
What is this beautifully constructive, wonderful piece of poetry? What is it talking about? What is the subject matter? Can you see it there? It's about power. It's about how he has killed somebody who just wounded him. Hey, that's interesting, isn't it? And why is he singing it to his wives? What's the message to them? There's this sinister kind of threatening inside to this beautiful song. It's almost like, I don't know, I didn't, I never watched it, but I, you know, the, the Sopranos guy, Tony, whatever it is, who died recently, you know, some of these films that portray these mafia bosses, you know, these really high up bad guys, you know, but who appear beautifully cultured and they, they love art and they do lovely things and they collect beautiful things and everything. But beneath it, there's this sinister iron fist of dominance and evil, really. And it's so disproportionate. He says, I've killed a young boy, actually, is what he says. He's rejoicing. Here's a song. I've just killed a young boy because he, he, he gave me a black eye. That's what he's saying. Aren't I great? Aren't I powerful? Remember that, Mr. and Mrs. Lamech, or Mrs. and Mrs. Lamech, the Mrs. Lamech, you know? That's what he's saying. What does it tell us? We've got the wonderful stuff that the human race can do, but there's this dark side that creeps in and pounces on us. And this, the Bible is saying, is where we are as we move away from God. And we see it today, don't we? Such wonderful things that we can do as a human race, such noble causes, revolutions have started. Even if we look at, you know, the, the attempts in, in some of the Arab Springs, a great beginning to get rid of, of evil rulers and so on. And then what happens? Loving relationships can become cruel. Beautiful art can be used in a brutal way. We can uh, sharpen useful tools. We can make wonderful art, but we can dream up weapons of unbelievable destruction. It's all there. And how up to date is this? What is the top news story today? Anyone know? Got that? Depends on your internet search or who you listen to, I suppose. Top news story is Google, the internet. You know, internet search engines and child abuse and child, well, more than abuse, awful stuff. David Cameron was on TV this morning saying, we've got to stop this because, uh, you know, it's not right, isn't it? It's evil. But here is the internet invented by the professor in Southampton. Well, he wasn't here then, but he is here now. Great. What a wonderful thing, the internet. Isn't it fantastic? What a fantastic idea. And yet, what is it mainly used for? See these two sides of human experience. But it doesn't end there. That all sounds a bit gloomy. Let's move on. Chapter 4, verse 25. Now we go back to Adam's family, another family story. Adam lay with his wife again, and he gave, she, sorry, she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel, since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh at that time. Men or human beings began to call on the name of the Lord. Now this tells of another son. Eve calls him Seth. Seth means put or place. Uh, she talks of, of this offspring. So you get it in the NRV. It's another offspring placed or put 
where Abel was. And that word there is a reminder. Remember that promise that God made Eve? I will put, I will place enmity between the serpent's offspring and your offspring. But your offspring will crush his head. Eve, even as she names her son, is using the word that reminds her that God is going to do something. And it's clear that her hope is that, and the book of Genesis is going to tell us that it's through that, that the rescue package is, the rescue plan is beginning to roll. She's holding on to a God who has promised to do something. And verse 26 tells us that at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. People at this time begin to realize, maybe because they see the glory of the human race and they see the ghastly possibilities. And we realize, they realize that we need help. We need the Lord. There's damage, but God is still there. People can call out to him. One of my favorite phrases from the New Testament is where Paul in Acts 17 says to a whole bunch of idol worshippers in uh, Athens, God is not far from any one of us. He wants us to reach out to him and find him, for he is not far from any one of us. And people at that time begin to realize that and call on the name of the Lord. And Genesis goes on with a summary of people and their lives in the next few generations. Let's just read some of it. I certainly can't do all of it. So it begins, this is chapter 5, verse 1. This is the written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man or humanity. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and he named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. And it goes on then. Then Seth, he lived 105 years. He became the father of Enosh and then he did that. He lived another 807 years. Altogether, he lived 912 years and then he died. And then it goes on, verse 9, when Enosh did the same thing, he became the father of Kenan, etc., etc. And then you know, altogether, he lived those number of years and then he died. And it goes to basically, that's what it's all about. These people are born, they live, they have a child or two or many, or these are just the ones that are mentioned in this genealogy, and then they die. And if you read it through, there's a pattern. It's not hard to see what the pattern is, is it? They live X years, they have children, they live a few more years, and they die. All the way through, except for one and you read about him in verse 21 now someone called Enoch when Enoch had lived 65 years it all starts the same he became the father of Methuselah and after the father he became the father of Methuselah Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters altogether Enoch lived 365 years Enoch walked with God then he was no more because God took him away. Well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? He walked with God and he escaped the cycle somehow. We don't quite know how or what, but that's what it's saying. 
And then in verse 28, it all goes on. The same pattern carries on. They have, they, they're born, they live so many years, they have so many sons and daughters, and they uh, live a few more years and then they die, all the way through until right at the very end in verse 28. Uh, another Lamech has, uh, has a son called Noah, and he names him Noah because he sees that the Lord is going to do something through this son of his, Noah, but that's another story. Now let's step back for a bit and ask ourselves what all of this is kind of telling us. Well, it's telling us, as I I hope we've got already, that it's telling us something about human beings, something about us. We can do great things, but there's a problem. What we do is spoiled, and what spoils it can get worse. What it's also saying, if you take the message of the genealogy, is mainly, we mainly live, we generally have children, and then we die. Lots of great things could happen to us, lots of bad things can happen to us. But that's about what it comes down to, generally. It's a bit of a bald statement, but that's the kind of message, isn't it, of Genesis. That's what human experience is. And, but within that, of course, there's wonderful things. You know, it's not good to be born, it's good to have children, and it's good to love them, and it's good to have friends, and but basically we're born, that happens, and then we die. So we can relish the glory of being human, of being in God's image. We be glad that we can take Uh, do wonderful things, but we need to realize that we're flawed and that we're in need of help. (laughs) And that's a humbling thing to admit that we as human beings need God's help. We're in a bit of a mess, not as bad as we might be, but it can get pretty bad. But there's something else this, this account tells us. It tells us not just something about us. It tells us something about the Lord. The God of Genesis, the one who promises a rescue, the one who's not far from us. And it's telling us that we can call upon him. More than that, it's telling us that we can walk with him. And that walking with him changes the hold that death has upon us. See, the one person who, who broke the cycle, as it were, was the one who walked with God, it says here. That death needn't be the last word for us. Now, that could make quite a difference to our lives. So let's take on board what it's saying about God, that he really does want us back with him, that he will hear if we call He doesn't want to ruin our lives. He's not waiting to punish us or to hurt us. But he will allow us to go our own way if we take no notice. We need to believe that for ourselves and believe that for others. But we need to get hold of the fact that we can call upon the name of the Lord. That's the amazing thing. Because of what God is like, it's not um, a contradiction to, to say, well, we can call on him. We can ask him for his help. You know, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, one of the first disciples, Peter, was talking about Jesus to a big crowd of people. It's in Acts chapter 2. It was just after the, after the Holy Spirit had come upon the church and the church was full of the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. And Peter quotes the Old Testament prophet, who's, and one of the things he f- ends up by saying is, 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he went on to tell these people that it was Jesus who was God's king. It was Jesus who could rescue us. It was Jesus who could bring us back into a right place with God where we're really forgiven and completely renewed. And the Holy Spirit that people were seeing, that's what brought the crowd together. They're thinking, what's going on here? This is weird. God's, is this God? Is they drunk? You know, you remember the story? Peter saying, no, Jesus is a risen king. You can call on the name of the Lord. You can know his rescue. You can know his forgiveness. You can know his spirit. Just call upon him. And we can call upon him. And so can anyone we know. Do you believe that? Do I believe that? Do I believe it for myself? Well, yes, I've called on him. Do you, most of us? Yes, we've done that, haven't we? But what about others that we know? Do we believe that if they call on him... And ask, he will respond and forgive. Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that if we call on him, he will flood our lives with his power and his forgiveness and his love? Do we believe that for ourselves? Do we believe it for other people? So let's call on him. Let's ask him. We can call on the name of the Lord, this good God who longs for us to be back in relationship with him. But more than that, we can walk with God. So the cycle of birth, years with or without kids, years more, death, it can be different. We can walk with God. Now, what does that mean? We don't quite know what it means with uh, Enoch, but it is a phrase that is used again through the Bible. It's a, already we've seen it in the, in the Genesis account. What happened in, at the end of the day in the Garden of Eden? What happened then? Do you remember what happened? God came down and walked in the garden. And he came down to the garden to look for Adam and Eve. They were hiding because they were ashamed. And that's how you know, the story goes on to tell us how, how they, they were found out in that sense. In the book of Genesis, uh, a, a lifetime journeying with God in relationship with him, is described as walking with God. Abraham, you see it chiefly in the story of Abraham, but Jacob, in Genesis 48, uh, just at the end of his life, he says, May the God before whom I've walked bless these two boys. He's praying for his grandsons, and it's a very moving passage, Genesis 48. It's a picture of friendship. Once we've called on him, how do we walk with him? Well, it's like friendship, as I say. How does that work? Well, your friends, you value them, don't you? You want to involve them in your life. You're conscious of their presence with you. Well, isn't it like that with walking with God? Isn't it that that we want to value him? We want to begin a day by committing it to him. It's a natural thing to thank him for the food that we eat or to just, you know, commit things to him. I suppose like asking him like like I did to please stop the, the alarm ringing, which he graciously answered. Um, that kind of stuff, a conversation when you're together with someone who's a friend, you're walking with them. There's an awareness, there's an interaction, there's listening. That's what prayer is about. That's what reading God's word and and reflecting it back to him in prayer and, and maybe with other people responding to God. That's what walking with God, a relationship, a friendship, a lifelong journey with God Jesus called his disciples to follow him, didn't he? And he didn't ask them to just follow a set of rules or he didn't ask them to to be certain kind of people. He said, just come with me. (laughs) Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He said, come along, come with me. 
Keep going with me. Keep walking with me. Step by step. Are you walking with God? Really? How is that happening in your life, in mine? You know, the Ephesian church in, uh, got a letter once. I think I've said this before. Jesus sent them a letter via John the Apostle. And it says to them, Ephesian church in Revelation chapter 2, uh, you've left your first love. He says, you need to come back. You need to do the things you did at first. Maybe there's some of that for us. Do what you did at the beginning. When you called on the Lord to begin with, when you started out with him, when prayer was something you just wanted to do all the time, when, when you know you couldn't get enough of the Bible, maybe that's where we need to be again, those things you did at first. But there's just one more thing I want to say. You know, sometimes you see more of a person in the way they relate to other people. Uh, somebody uh, I, I really loved a great deal was my grandfather. I only had one grandfather when I was a boy. The other one died before I was born. And he lived in Enfield, and we lived on the Isle of Wight or in Hampshire. I didn't see him much. Um, but he was my grandpa, and I loved him very much. He died when I was 17. And I knew him as a boy. I knew he was very affectionate. I used to be quite embarrassed. He was a very tall man. He was about six foot four. Um, if you want to know what he looks like, he's a, if our other son Phil ever visits, he's a spitting image of my grandpa, but that's for genetics for you. But anyway, uh, anyway, he, you know, when I used to walk with him, sometimes I'd walk, I was about, probably about eight or nine, we'd walk down the road and he put his arm around me, you know, and I was embarrassed about it. I remember thinking I wasn't used to that kind of, I suppose, that kind of physical public affection. And I, and I loved him dearly. He was a dear man. And, uh, you know, on one occasion when I was a boy, uh, he, he took me because he was the um, station inspector. He was the boss of Enfield Town Station. He was a railway man all his life. I've still got his gold watch at home in my cupboard. It got for ever many years service. And um, I, I remember he took me. I was only a, I was a small boy. And he took me there and uh, he took me on a Saturday morning. And, and, and he was the boss. And, and I remember there were, there were trains being coupled up and uh, he let me you know, do stuff. And, but I saw him relating to his workforce, the people beneath him. And I saw something else about him in that. And then sometimes I remember occasion when I was at their house and I didn't visit much. Well, one of his mates, I think, well, the union rep or something, popped in because he, 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 later he'd retired because he, he had emphysema and stuff. And again, observing that, quite a different conversation. The point is... I got to know more of him as I saw him relating with other people. And sometimes with friends, you know, we saw it, you know, chiefly and, and uh, you know, as a family, you know, we gather as we were thinking of Jackie's life and, uh, and Jackie as a person. You know, when you get together, you know, that friendship is in common and like at the funeral and the tributes, you, you, you kind of share what each of you have kind of discovered about the person and you kind of rejoice together in that that friendship is is kind of shares isn't it well walking with god does involve being together you know just like you know together what, what we're doing today we're together what you do in a house group please join a house group and be part of a house group what when the house groups are working properly or not properly you know I mean, when they're when they're really going well and what are we doing we're we're kind of, we're all friends of God. We're walking with God, but we're learning about how he works in your life, in your life, in your life. And, and it's different in my life. And I'm learning more about him like that. We're walking with God together. 
individually as well as together. So, that's it. Let's get it right in our heads about being human. Let's get it right in our heads about God. Let's believe the truth about him, not stuff that gets picked up all over the place, what he's really like. Let's call upon the Lord, know that he can rescue us. And let's walk with him. <laughs> like Enoch, I'm pretty sure unless Jesus comes, most of us will actually die. We won't be translated like Enoch was. But the point of Enoch's life is that our life can be defined not by being born, having children and then dying, but by walking with the Lord through all of that. May we know that individually. May we know it together as we want to give him the praise and the glory. Amen. Let's respond. So we're, um, we're going to sing a song together that focuses on, um, as a plea from us to walk closer with God.